I'm Jack Semlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2019 Strip Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Building Your First Berms Lessons Learned from the Field, offers some experience based insight from a strip tiller's first few years getting a system established. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if there's another app you prefer for listening to podcasts, let us know, and we'll make every effort to get it added. And by subscribing, that will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released. Thanks again to TopCon Agriculture for its support of this podcast series. Agronomy matters, and TopCon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. Well, being a trendsetter comes with both rewards and risks. As one of the first farmers to experiment with strip-till in southwest Kentucky, Joseph Sisk has capitalized on the early promise of the practice, while also enduring some of the inevitable transitional challenges. Starting small in 2014, Joseph gradually added acres to his strip-till system, and he now strip-tills all 2,300 acres of corn on his 5,000-acre operation in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, which includes no-till soybeans and wheat, along with cover crops. Joseph says the challenge he wanted to solve with strip-till was on rolling ground, finding a way to marry the cover cropping they had been doing without the risk of degrading their corn stands. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast, Joseph breaks down the successes and struggles in expanding his strip-till system to include examples of early experiences adopting the practice. We've had two full seasons of doing, trying to do all the corn. We had a year before that where we did just a portion of it. I got a good friend in the, in the room, Michael Lester. He, he did this, he was doing this a couple of years before us and I was able to use some of his equipment the very first year we played with it just to kind of see what we wanted. You know, it's like a lot of things that I've done and that we've all done in farming that it's good to get together and talk about it because it's real different. In West Kentucky, we had some people that had a really bad experience two years ago with cover crop and soybeans with some pest problems you know, and they found out that didn't work well for them. But as we've, as we've gone through this thing, we've all bought some lessons that if we share it with each other, maybe somebody else doesn't have to buy the same lesson. So uh, I'm no expert on this, but I've done it. And I've, I'm two years into it, and maybe there's something there that'll help someone else, and maybe y'all can share something with me that'll help me as I go forward with this. Um, a little cropping history of my farm. Um, we are corn, wheat, and soybeans. Mainly, we've had some canola. Uh, we raise, uh, we're in Kentucky's industrial hemp program, so we're raising some hemp at this time. Um, and then normally mo- half of our ground, about half our ground's in wheat. So we were covering those years anyway. And we went to trying to use cover crops seven, eight, nine years ago. We've gotten into a deal now that we're almost exclusively using cereal rise cover. Four years ago, we had an issue in the spring trying to get planted. 
the cover crop was doing exactly what it was supposed to do, but we couldn't get the row to break up and we couldn't get good seed contact and we couldn't get the row to dry out enough to really do a good job planting. And we started playing with a strip freshener, trying to get something working there without disturbing all of it, but disturbing just enough that we could do a better job of planting corn. And that's where we've ended up with, with uh, in the, the system I have at this point. We ended up settling on Orthman um, we had a good dealer there that helped us, H&R AgriPower in Hoptown, that helped us get set up with it. I have a lot of set rock, and when I say big rocks, I mean they're really big rocks. We just kind of, Ross Morgan said this morning, we just see the top of them and that's all we see. I didn't want to run a shank because I didn't want areas of the field being left out as we moved along through the field. Uh, I want, and so we are strip tilling almost exclusively in the spring. The last two years, as wet as it's been, we've ended up strip tilling just kind of the day before we planted it, and that's worked really well for us. We killed rye at different levels, and we've tried different things. For my operation, what seems to work the best is to kill the rye at the six to seven inch range, which is gonna sound real different when you talk to other people from other areas. And I don't want it green when we plant. I want it to be brown when we plant. Um, we tend to, with our cereal rye and our soils at six, seven, eight inch tall rye, have, have easily find roots at 18 to 20 inches deep. Once I've got roots that deep, I, for what I'm wanting about compaction uh, resolution, I'm below anything that I did the year before mechanically. So, uh, so as we look through this, when I talk about cereal rye cover, it's not gonna be the great big green stuff that we'll see in some of the other presentations, but I think for our operation, it's, it's, it's doing what we wanted. Um, most of y'all are probably familiar with this equipment, but um, this is the Orthman's shallow tillage setup. Um, it's a double, it's a double coulter in the middle where the shank would be. And, um, and anyway, that's what we run exclusively. I, I didn't even purchase the shanks. Um, if I go forward the correct way here, we are following with a planter. We put a LaForge hitch on it and we're correcting the planter to stay on the strip. We have a lot of really rolling ground where we are and a lot of, places we're having to plant on curves some and so we have to correct it the, I'm not doing any correction on the on the Orthman obviously because it's hitched uh, but we are correcting the planter and after we put the stabilizers on the planter we started off without stabilizers but after we put stabilizers on the planter we are it's doing a fantastic job of staying in the center of the strip which has been a been a really good thing for us yeah so we have RTK on the tractor but we also but we also but we also have a receiver on the planter so the tractor always stays centered. We're not doing anything about adjusting where the tractor is. And then there's a hydraulic hitch on the planter that slides it. It can slide it as 18 inches either way, 15 inches either way. And when the planter is not where it's supposed to be, the hitch moves on the tractor to put it back on the strip. I had a friend tell me I needed stabilizers. I decided I was gonna go to the field without them. Even with all that going on, we were, having a, we were just doing this all the time on the row. It was adjusting itself, but it was wanting to walk, trying to get right all the time. And we put the, um, we put the stabilizers on, and when we, the stabilizer blades like we used to use on, field, on row cultivators, the big tall stabilizer blades, and it planted it, then it was fine. It, it quit walking around, so. It, that would be my advice. I was given that advice and didn't follow it, and I got to do it in the, on a hot day in the middle of trying to plant corn, put stabilizers on a planter, but the stabilizers were very important for us. The closing coulters on an Orthman are on a round post. We break one of those every day. So we keep some spares and we weld them back up. And it's because I think I'm doing something to it it wasn't really made to do, in that 
since I don't have a shank and I just have that sh a strip freshener set up kind of, I'm doing a lot of tillage with those back coulters and I've got them set in kind of hard and deep and, and they're getting pushed out all the time. So when they hit a rock, sometimes they do break. We don't lose them, they just crack. And uh, they're not hard to fix and we just keep extra ones on the truck and we can put one on in two minutes. I mean, uh, but, but we do, that, that has been an issue with the rock. Outside of that, we've not had anything, we've not broken, we've run it on maybe 4,000 acres. We haven't broken anything because of a rock strike yet outside of those and i think in that case it's just because we're we're making those things do more tillage than what they were originally designed to do you know there's different diffusers you can buy that you can blow it in right on the coulters and we looked at that i tell you the first year we did it i kind of thought we would move towards dry and we i may still do it but that we'd move towards dry but i felt like we were getting too many things going at once in the field like i want to learn this one thing before we move on and and so we we went to the field without dry that first year, just in an effort to keep things simple. And we put the liquid on because I already owned all of it and it didn't cost anything to really do it. And after we saw the response from the liquid and after that corn crop, we were able to achieve behind it. I'm not, going, I'm not doing dry anytime soon. But if we did, we, could, we can diffuse into those coulters. We'll get back to Joseph's discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for making this podcast possible. I also wanted to remind you about a new series featured monthly on our podcast, Tech Tips with Dr. Ray Acevedo, where the former assistant professor of precision agriculture at Kansas State University and consultant for Topcon Agriculture shares insights and advice on some of the latest precision tools and how to best implement them in your strip-till operation. You can listen to past technology tips and also find accompanying articles at striptillfarmer.com. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Joseph Sisk, who discusses how early equipment modifications helped improve his strip-till efficiency. The spring strip for me works really, really well. It's not gonna work for everybody but I don't want the shank in the field. I, with the, this is my opinion, all this work we're doing with this cereal rye and these deep roots and trying to get all that done with that compaction layer work, I can't get my mind wrapped around why I need a shank there also. And for me, it's gonna turn into a very expensive endeavor. We're gonna tear up all kinds of stuff, so. I'm controlling corn only in that my corn row and my sprayer always is in the same place. Our wheat and soybeans we set off at an angle, just on my farm. Not everybody in my area does that, but we do it. So my corn's predetermined, and the sprayer is always driving between cornrows. If the sprayer's in the field, it never drives where a cornrow's gonna be. Does that make sense? That's, so I am controlling corn and sprayer traffic. We've not had any trouble getting the corn stumps out of the way, and we're going right back on the same row. And you know, we're all learning this thing. We may find out that's not the thing, but we're trying to, make those roots follow each other and keep that corn row soft. And, uh, and so we've had corn behind corn strip tilled with Micah's machine three years ago and then the last two years and been remarkable stands and the corn has not suffered from that at all. And, and we have no streaking in those corn. We have a, we've got a really heavy clay in a lot of our fields. And when we go to plant in the spring, we're usually out there at a time that we can create sidewall. So what I found with the Orthman was this is a really good, it's making a really hard, nice sidewall, the thing that you don't want. 
but I'm doing it out at 13 inches, right? And so by the time the corn gets down, it hasn't been in a, it, it, you thought, I, th I hoped it wouldn't affect the corn and it has not. It's been a good, it's been fine. But what we, what we found the first time we took it to the field, we were creating a pan across the bottom when it was heavy. And it was scaring us because that would obviously be really bad if we kept all the roots up there in a little box. Um, but what we did find out was if we took the center coulters and brought them up an inch higher for us, an inch higher than the back coulters, that they still did the chopping, they still gave me the seed bed prep that I wanted, and those back coulters are set at an angle and they crowded all that. And that's why I said I might break one every now and then if I hit a rock, because I'm really asking a lot of them. But when we crowd it, we end up breaking that. And so when we dig down in the center, you can't find it. I mean, you, there is a density change, obviously, because you've worked and not. But there's not, there's not that layer that we were getting when they were all, when it came from the factory, they were all set at the same level. And it left an awful looking thing. But when we brought them up and crowded it, we bunched it and broke it and it's not there anymore. And we haven't had any trouble, we haven't had any trouble stopping roots and we have really run this thing on some days that was, it was very heavy, marginally too wet. The, the back ones, I'm almost running them to the hubs, probably four inches, four and a half inches. And the, and the center ones, I'm running an inch shallower. They don't always get in that deep, but I've got the, we keep the, we keep the coulters where the shank would be and set, if we set it down on concrete, we keep them an inch higher than the back ones. You know, farmers, it looks good. <laughs> but no, I, we went to the field with it and it was doing well enough that we didn't, we, we, we haven't played with it a lot. Um, I, I know that, uh, I know that since I started doing it, that my stand emergence is remarkably improved in that the plants are all alike. They're all coming up at the same time. And they're all like each other. And it's what we've been striving for for so long that I stuck with it and did it. Uh, side by side yield comparisons, I'm certain I'm getting a better yield. I'm not, I'm just not doing much. I'm not doing much to disprove that. My yields have gone up since we started strip tilling and my emergence is so much better and that's what we all wanted. We wanted the plants to come up together and look alike. So the flow to each row, I did not put red balls or do anything on this machine because I can see this, I can see the bars and we, we do clean, we clean the filters every morning, the tip filters, but we, we just set a hydraulic pump on the, on the, on the deck that I'd built in front of the saddle tanks on the front of the tractor. And we just adjust the hydraulic flow and we have a pressure gauge. And we are doing that directly on pressure. Um, we've got a little flow track thing that we keep in all our tractors that plant or do whatever that we don't have hooked to speed. We don't have it hooked to speed, but it'll show gallons per minute. And the guys, whoever, me or whoever's in the tractor can keep up with that also, but it's pretty rudimentary. But on pressure, we start off on pressure and then we do our gallons per minute. And then every morning we check, you know, we check our tip screens. And every now and then you'll, one of the stream bars will stop up, but it's real infrequent. But it's, it's very simple. It's very simple, but, uh, it, but it's worked very well. And the stream bars, the only time, i tell you something interesting. The stream bars, when they get weak, <clears throat> we used all old stuff that we had. We had a couple stream bars run one night for a while, turned sideways. It was dusty. Guy couldn't see it, you know. And he, he, the next morning he told me it happened, and I was worried about it. I was like, God, it's going to be bad, you know, all that, all that right on top of the row, and if you know, it could burn the corn, and we never saw it. 
I guess that basket, you know, it's happening behind the basket, but I guess that dirt was still so fresh. But that, that was something we had to guard against was keeping those stream bars turned sideways because eight gallons spread out over 18 inches is no big deal. But putting it in a direct line like that, I figured we were going to lose two rows of corn, but it didn't. We never saw it. Thank you, Joseph, for providing insight on your entry points into strip-till and some of the early lessons learned. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to email me at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast series in iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when upcoming episodes are released. And again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for helping make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. You can also keep up on the latest Strip-Till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free Strip-Till Strategies daily e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Strip-Till, F-A-R-M-R, and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on February 15th for the next episode in our 2019 podcast series. And a reminder, you can still register to receive our Strip-Till Farmer print publication at striptillfarmer.com. For Joseph Sisk, TopCon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jack Zemlicka. Thanks for listening.